Hello, I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. When this election began, Roland and I wanted to focus on the issues that would matter most to this region, free from the rhetoric of party lines and sound bites. At the start of this election, we were fortunate that a topic we focus on a lot on this podcast, that of housing, became front and center in the national debate. We were lucky to get Mike Moffat back on to share his expertise of the matter with our listeners and to keep us informed. Now, in keeping with that mission, we are looking to what we think ought to be the number one issue this election, aside from COVID-19, of course, and that is climate change. This summer saw climate change creep back into the headlines, stealing attention away from COVID-19, and for good reason. This year saw a record-breaking heat wave sweep the West Coast, resulting in a town burning to the ground. Here in Ontario, we have seen one of the wettest summers on record, and it is safe to say that human behavior has irrevocably changed our climate. As well, climate change remains one of the top polling issues of the electorate Canada-wide, and yet it has barely made a point of debate in this election. In keeping with our effort to focus on the issues that are important to the 905, we reached out and invited Keith Brooks from Environmental Defense to the podcast. Keith is the program's director at Environmental Defense, where he seeks to advocate for a cleaner environment and a greener economy. He has a master's in environmental studies and has written many times on the need for a more sustainable economy. Keith joins us today to share his expertise. As well, before we begin, a friendly reminder that if you are enjoying the 905er, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can also take the time and buy us a coffee. Both of the links are in the show notes. Either way, your support will go a long way to help us continue to tell the stories of the 905. Thank you and enjoy. We'd like to welcome Keith Brooks of Environmental Defense to the 905er podcast. Th- Keith, thank you very much for taking your time this morning to uh, to come on and join us for this uh about the uh, uh, environment, about climate change, and the importance that it is to uh, the 905 region here. Uh, let, let me ask you, let me start by this. The, the discussion that we've been having in this campaign, this election campaign so far, to me, I haven't really seen any focus on climate change. Uh, you know, that, that this, this, it keeps ranking up there with people's top concerns in in public opinion polls, but I haven't really seen that come out, this come out as a major dis, uh, uh, discussion in the national discourse. Uh, so far in this campaign, and maybe you know, do you want? I like to kind of remind our listeners about why it is that we really need to be concerned about this, uh, especially with those of us living in the in the nine hundred five region. Well, uh, the risks of climate change, the evidence of climate change, the rate at which the climate is changing, are all getting increasingly uh, grave. I, I think you know we keep hearing uh, warnings. We heard one from the International Energy Agency you know, about what would, what would it take to stay within a 1.5 degree world, which is the, the goal that was set in the Paris Agreement in 2015. Um, and, and they said, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a, a drastic transformation. It will, it will take some effort to do, but it does leave the economy better off. But, you know, um, I think a lot of people heard about the wildfires out west this year. This is not the first year we've had fires, but, you know, they're saying 700 or more people died as a result of those fires and the extreme heat out west. I mean, we've had people die here. There was a flood in Toronto in 2013, right? Uh, 81 people died there. People died from heat out in Montreal a couple of years ago. I mean, climate change is, is, a, is a real and present danger. It's, it's actually costing us lives now, and it's, it's going to get worse unless we take drastic action to reduce emissions now. This is 
the decade. This decade between now and 2030 is a critical decade for us to make quite significant changes uh, to our, our energy system and to our economy. Um, and it's really important, you know, that the government that goes to Ottawa after this election is serious about climate change because they're going to be in power into the middle of this decade, this critical decade. So what, what you're saying is like we, I guess that's the, the one factor that always pops into this discussion is we keep hearing about the need of, um, you know, the, the we keep hearing deadlines. Twenty twenty is a deadline. Twenty thirty, twenty fifty is a is a major deadline. But like, you're the expert. Where where are we on the on the in terms of the the critical timeline of getting a, a handle on this problem? Are, are we coming? Are we getting near closer to the 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 end? Like the the absolute due date, the the point of no return. I mean, there's not a point of no return necessarily. Like. We're going to hit certain degrees of warming or already more than one degree of warming is taking place. And the only way that we reverse that is if we take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is very difficult to do. Um, you know, we're, we're going to plant a billion trees, a couple billion trees here in Canada, but still that's not actually going to reduce carbon out of the atmosphere on the level that we need. So we have to stop emitting carbon. That's what's critical. We have to do so sooner rather than later. And, and the more quickly that we do that, the less amount of warming that we'll see. And, and we can kind of stop this runaway train and try to figure out what's what's happening there. But uh, there's not a point of no return at which point we should give up. The degrees of warming matter. And, and the IPCC, the international panel, uh, looked at this and they said, look, the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees is literally hundreds of millions of people are put in harm's way as a result of climate change. And the same thing goes as we incrementally warm more and more. So, you know, 2.5 is worse than two, three is worse than that. So, you know, there's not a point in return, but we have an urgent need to stop. And that 1.5 degree of warming still needs to be the goal. It is the goal that we agreed to in Paris. We're starting to model what that looks like here in Canada and internationally. We're not on track to reach that goal. We're right, right now we're on track for three degrees, maybe 3.5. Um, so we really need to up our game and we need to do so urgently. Or, you know, these deaths that we're seeing, this destruction that we're seeing is going to get worse and worse. Um, that, that's what we're facing. How how does Canada fit into the kind of global picture of this? Uh, we feel, to an extent, because we're next to the US, you always feel that, well, we're not as bad as the US, uh, but compared with, say, European nations, um, how how are we doing? I mean, it felt, I mean, I, I, you can tell from my accent, I, I emigrated here. I remember when I came to Canada, it seemed like the green movement hadn't even started, whereas I'd grown up, I felt like I'd grown up with it. Are we behind or, or um, are we just, is that our, our slowness to deal with the issues that, that, are, that are coming our way just typical of every nation? No, we're behind here actually in, in Canada. Um, a lot of, there's some polls and re polls recently have said that Canadians think that Canada is now serious about climate change and we're in the game and we are getting a lot of new commitments out of, you know, the, the, the federal government previously and now during the election campaign, we're getting new commitments to go further but the reality is, is that we are behind. We're behind all the G7 nations. Uh, we're the only country in the G7, in fact, that where emissions have risen since we signed the Paris Accord. Emissions continue to go up in Canada, uh, and that's driven mainly by oil and gas and transportation. Those are the two largest sources of, of emissions here in, in Canada. Um, in fact, those two together are about half of our emissions. But we're lagging behind our peers. We have weaker targets. And even the U.S. now under the new administration with President Biden, they've committed to a target 
that is stronger than what any of the parties, well, not any of the parties, but what's stronger than what, you know, Canada's government had committed to um, kind of prior to this election season unfolding. So, um, yeah, we're, we're behind all of the rest of the developed countries. That's an important thing. And emissions, not just in our commitments, but actually in emissions, emissions from Canada continue to rise when they need to be falling quite dramatically. And, and certain countries in, in uh, Europe have actually made great strides in reducing emissions. The UK, Germany, other countries, and we, we actually need to, to up our game to catch up to where those those leading countries are at. Um, you mentioned the the need for uh, a focus on oil and gas and transportation, which is I, I think it, it, when you hear oil and gas, you're thinking immediately your thoughts go to Alberta. That's not what this podcast is about. We're focusing on the 905, which it does play a major factor. I mean, the 905 is one of the most populated regions of the country. Um, and and people, when people think of transportation, I mean, everybody's thinking of getting on the QEW, the 401, the 403, and just being stuck in gridlock traffic, uh, driving in and out of Toronto on a daily commute to work, which of course doesn't do any wonders for the environment. Um, maybe we can talk about the, the need for better infrastructure, better, better planning to change these behaviors. One of the things that Roland and I have noticed over the last course of the pandemic has been more more and more of us are working from home. You know, how do we encourage that so that we have less cars on the road, less less commuting, less pollution in the air? Uh, you know, it, like what changes do we need to make in the 905, I guess, to to kind of really tackle this issue? Um, yeah, you're right, Joel. So, okay, 905 GTHA is about 40% of Ontario's emissions. And Ontario has the second largest emissions per second to Alberta because we've got a big population base here. And our emissions in Ontario are driven by transportation and by and by buildings in the GTHA. And the larger Ontario region, of course, industry is a big factor. Uh, but our electricity grid's pretty clean in Ontario because we phased out coal. There's some problems that the provincial government wants to rely more on natural gas, and that's something we should be looking out for. But in terms of individuals and what we can do, yeah our transportation habits, and also the buildings that we live and work in. Those are the really big things that we need to change. Uh, working from home is, is is certainly part of the solution. Getting cars off the road, certainly part of the solution. If we're going to be traveling, it's better for traveling by, by transit or we're traveling by bike or we're walking or things like that. Uh, in order to be able to do so, of course, that means we need to be building communities in a particular way, not building car-dependent communities where you have little choice but to get in your car. And I, I'm from the 905, so I know that that's the way it is for a lot of people. And I don't blame someone that lives in a car-dependent community for being dependent upon a car. They don't have a choice. So it's about how we build our, our region. Are we building at the densities that we need to support transit? Are we building you know, all of the shops that you might need so that you could walk or, or bike or take you know, some kind of active transportation to get the things that you need? I live in a compact neighborhood in Toronto. My kids walk to school. I walk to the local store. I could walk to anything I want and I could bike down to my office. So you know, that's a, a great situation for me. And that's what we need to be doing in the 905. Um, and there's a lot of development taking place in the 905. There's a push right now, and this is more provincial than federal, but we're talking about affordable housing, which is a serious issue. The solution that the developers would like to see is just more urban sprawl, more growth, more car-dependent communities. Uh, it's been said, though, that urban sprawl is the the oil sands of Ontario. This is the driver of emissions in Ontario because it's building more car-dependent communities, more large single-family homes that are not energy efficient. Um, and that needs to change. Our development patterns need to change to be more dense. And we need to be adding density in areas that are already slated for development, 
not pushing further out to to the green belt or areas beyond or even what we're calling the contested countryside but but the area that is not in the green belt but not currently slated for development that is um uh what's left of those farmers fields and the green spaces that you'd see if you go up near milton or you know up further north uh uh, in northern northern parts of burlington that's not yet developed so that's a huge a huge thing i just want to say on the transportation piece electric vehicles are part of the solution absolutely i think uh, canada's making some pledges around electrified vehicles it's a good thing um we need to be going further in that direction Unfortunately, though, on, on this one, you know, uh, Canadians actually sh- would be, they should know that we actually drive the most polluting cars in the world um, because we're driving bigger and bigger cars all the time. Uh, 80% of the cars sold in Canada now are SUVs and trucks. And I think these are quite <laughs> prevalent in the, in the 905. Um, so we, we want to get electrified cars. We want to change our transportation patterns. We want to build densities. But we really can't be driving these massive vehicles. It's I know it's an, it's not it, nice to hear that, but but these big cars have a big footprint, and that actually needs to change. The, the end result of all this will be a far more traditional society in many ways. It always seems to me, and that that we have lived throughout history, generally in urban settlements, uh, or rural and urban settlements, but but that depended on on getting around by foot. So things were designed for that. And their problem, particularly in the 905, or across North America really, is we designed for the car and now we're trying to fix that mistake and it's going to be a huge challenge. Now, look at, looking at the, um, uh, you know, we're not going to ask you to sort of rate the parties or anything like that, but um, is there anything in particular that you have seen um, during this election that, that you think stands out as as distinct or um or a positive sign i mean it seems you know every party will say that the other party is is you know back slipping or uh, either not going far enough or going so far that they'll destroy the economy in the process that doesn't really help us make a judgment about their policies um but what, what do you see as a kind of independent outsider um uh, uh when when you look at uh, the current debate I think one of the really good things is that all of the leaders, uh, all of the parties do have some kind of plan to fight climate change. Um, that wasn't always so. Um, you know, I think the, the last election, one of the, that's one of the things that uh, the parties learned is that you actually need to have a somewhat serious plan to fight climate change um, that, you know, details some policies, some things that you're going to do um, to actually fight climate change. And so we now all of the major parties do have a plan. Those plans vary in terms of the stringency. So like, how ambitious are they? What kind of targets are they setting? Are they in line with this 1.5 degree world that we need to be on track for? Um, they're, they're, they're not all aligned. So, you, you know, people should take a look. What are the targets that people have set? What are they committed to reducing it? So and the targets are really wonky, right? But it's like, I'm going to re- reduce emissions by X percent by, you know, year, year Y. And the, the year that we're really looking at um, and that the climate community says Canada's fair share is to reduce emissions by 60% uh, from 2005, but anyway, 60% by 2030. That's what we should be looking for. We also, and I, and I know we're talking about 905, but we need to have a serious conversation about the future of oil and gas in this country. It still looms large. Open up the business papers, open up any of the papers, in fact, and you'll, you'll learn about the price of oil and is this pipeline getting built and this project approved and all this kind of stuff. This is a really important factor for everybody in Canada. We need to send people to Ottawa who are going to admit that we actually need to phase out oil and gas. 
And that means the phrasing of the use of it, but also its production. It is the pulling of oil and gas from the ground and turning it into fuel that's responsible for a quarter of Canada's emissions. Those emissions continue to rise. So if someone's not willing to talk about a phase out of fossil fuels, they're not serious about climate change. They're not committed to it. Um, yeah, go ahead, Joel. I, well, I mean, let's... I'm going to play devil's advocate here um, because here in uh, in, uh, in Oakville we have the the Petro Canada refinery where the uh, oil is pumped in from Alberta down to that refinery to be refined into gasoline for us to use. There are a lot of people who say, "Okay, fine, we need to get off oil and gas." Like you're just saying, what do we transition to? What you know? What what? How how? It, it's easy to say that, but when you really think about it, that's a huge, huge endeavor. I mean, between like the the plastics manufacturing in Sarnia, chemical manufacturing that happens there, as I just said, oil refining here in Canada, uh, here on in uh, Oakville, uh, and also just the fact that there's millions of jobs that are connected to that industry. We say let's get off oil and gas, but that's a huge, like that's almost like a, a moonshot endeavor. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, like, can can it be done? Yeah, I mean, the technology exists for us to do it. Um, and in fact, the answer lies in electrification of the economy, uh, for the most part. So it means making our cars electric. It means making home heating and water heating electric. Um, and it means that there's some other solutions for some, there's some industries that are going to be difficult to, to address. And there's some role then for some hydrogen and some of those places that are really hard to address. But most of the solution lies in electricity. We already have electricity grids all over the place. Electric cars will, we hope, soon be widely available. Electric home heating is actually already available. There's incentives to help people kind of do that. Um, the technology is there. It's been modeled by umpteen scientists and academics and, and, and whatnot. And there's other countries that are already kind of leading the way and making these commitments. So if Canada is to follow suit, we're definitely not going alone. And yes, there's there's jobs there. But, you know, it's important to think about. So, you know, Sarnia chemical valley like there's jobs there but there's a ton of pollution too and there's people who are impacted by that pollution in particular first nations people who live you know downwind of those refineries are getting choked out by sulfur dioxide plumes all the time there's environmental racism taking place in canada as a result of of, of the petroleum and petrochemical industry the plastics industry which is highly problematic and you know people in oakville fought against a gas plant because they knew that that was a pollution associated with that and that gas plant was going to be cited quite near where that petro where that, that refinery is because and the refinery and the highway and those things are already contributing to poor air quality. So it's not just about climate change, but you want cleaner air to breathe. Well, we, we phased out coal, that made the air a lot cleaner. And we phase out the rest of the production and the refining of fossil fuels and their use on the roads, that's also going to improve our air quality. In fact, we modeled it. And for the GTHA, if all cars were electric and, and, and trucks actually were a lot cleaner too. It would save billions of dollars in public health costs. Billions of dollars in benefits uh, come to people, and actually, each each electric car, if they're all electrified, give a ten thousand dollar public benefit in terms of a better air quality, avoided hospitalizations, avoided deaths. The jobs piece is a serious consideration, though, and that's what people are talking about. A just transition, or there's a couple of different terms for it, but like, yes, people's livelihoods are going to be impacted by the phase out of fossil fuels. We need to take this seriously. So first, we need to commit to that phase out. We need to plan for that phase out. And that means not just planning for technology to replace the energy that we get from fossil fuels, but planning for an economy that gives jobs and livelihoods and supports communities and workers in, in the way that they need so that this transition is gradual, 
that it helps people find new jobs or maybe those those positions you know are phased out through attrition people get early you know packages to retirement things like that we need to plan we need to plan for that and doing so is much much more compassionate than pretending that there's going to be a demand for fossil fuels forever and we don't need to plan for this transition if we if we don't plan for it then those workers those communities those people who rely on those industries are going to be left high and dry uh, much, much. It, it'll be like when you know we lost all those manufacturing jobs here in Ontario, or when cod fishery collapsed out east, or the forestry industry. I mean, if the transition's coming, we we ought to plan for it. Uh, we can do it, and we and if, if we are uh, compassionate to workers and communities, I mean, that's that's a much much better approach. Well, there is something to be said about that because there's a thought that um, India and China is going to they need to buy all of our our oil, and to my understanding, China is undergoing a massive electrification project in its own own board. I mean, and that, quite frankly, if China and India follow suit on a massive electrification greening of their economies, I, yeah, that's, I mean, that's half the world's population right there that they're going to be kind of taken off the market in terms of needing to con- consume oil and gas. So I, I see your point about kind of needing to be planning for the, just the, the, economics reality of of what's coming down the the coming down the road that was just yeah, a well, we, we benefit from getting out in front of it too really right mm-hmm. i mean if we're if, if we're laggards if we're kind of at the end of the pack then we get hit hard uh when the transition nearly does come and demand does dry up if we're out front of it then we're part of the solutions providers we're providing the solutions that we need but also the whole world needs the whole world needs to decarbonize uh and you know we're going to continue to innovate i mean the innovation that's happening in this space is, is quite amazing. I mean, you can read, again, like you could read about the oil companies, but also read about new battery technology in cars that's allowing them to go further. Read about how much the price of solar panels and wind turbines have come down in the last couple decades. It is astonishing, the leaps and, and, and gains that we're making there. And, you know, we want to be part of that game. We should be figuring out what is our role, what's Canada bring to this kind of clean, decarbonized economy that provides jobs and livelihood for the next generation because it can't continue to be fossil fuels and, and just kind of natural resources. We kind of need to grow up a little bit here. If, if, if there's one thing that all the parties should be talking about with regard to the environment that they're not, uh, what would you say that is? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, for us, the the three issues that we're really looking for uh, from the f- from federal parties is is a serious plan around climate change. The other one is some action on plastics. I don't think plastics are getting enough attention during this election season. And the third one is is reform of the the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which regulates toxic chemicals in um, in 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 consumer products and more broadly, kind of in, in Canada. Um, you know, plastics is an issue though that the public cares a lot about. Eighty percent of Canadians want to see some federal action on plastics. Uh, again, it's another place for Canada. We've made some promises, but we're behind our peers in Europe who have uh, are banning eleven single-use plastics, kind of taking some serious action. Um, I don't think we're talking enough about what is actually the plan here to deal with plastics. And there's a little bit of dissonance here where we have. Um, you know, as, as, as Joel kind of mentioned, we've got a petrochemical industry, we've got a plastics industry that creates jobs. And so on the one hand, we're saying, oh, we're going to ban some of these plastics and phase out these things. And the other hand, we're subsidizing uh, the petrochemical and plastics manufacturing industry. And in fact, maybe we believe that, you know, future demand for oil is going to be moving towards plastics. Well, that actually can't be the case. We actually do, we need to use less plastic and we need to be less reliant upon jobs for plastics. And I think that's 
a piece that's important to be talking about. Well, on when we mentioned that we in the pa- previous uh, government prior to the pandemic, there was talk of you know the banning of single use plastics and uh, and that kind of thing, and then you had on t- as well on top of that uh, introduction of a carbon price into the economy, and a lot of the naysayers were saying that this this doesn't do anything. It's it's a drop in the bucket and it's a waste waste of time. Uh, as somebody who's, who studied this, could you? maybe give us an enlightenment or just kind of educate us. How effective are these policies? When you say banning single-use plastics, like the the plastic bags uh, at the grocery store or straws and, you know, the plastic forks and spoons that you get uh, um, for barbecues and stuff. When we say we're going to ban this stuff and introduce things like carbon pricing, like these seems like very small, ineffectual policies, but are like how, how much does it, does it impact? Does it have on, uh, moving us toward our targets. I mean, economists love carbon pricing, um, um, and like you know, the, the the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, uh, the Economist magazine, all of these these different places have written up about about Canada's carbon tax, about BC's carbon tax, about how this is a model that the world should follow. I think for a long time we were very timid about the level we'd set our carbon tax at, and people were right to be skeptical about its impact, though. Um, you know, there are commitments now from from some parties to increase the, the price of that uh, carbon tax quite significantly, which is good. I mean, and economists like it because, you know, you make the, the cost of the thing that you don't want higher. Right. And 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 give people back. The money gets rebated back to people. So, you know, you and, and, and me and everybody were no worse off. But now we're being disincentivized, you know, from doing one thing and that money's put back to us and we can make choices about what we want to do with it. I mean, um, the carbon tax, most research says that it it is driving down emissions. It does need to rise significantly, though, to have the impact that we need. And again, it's not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullets when it comes to fighting climate change, but it is a tool that we should be using. It's one of the many things that that should be part of the policy mix here in Canada. Um, and one thing that actually we're not talking about is that can, there's a recent polling that says Canadians would, would support a carbon tax even more so if they knew that the money collected by that carbon tax was put back into clean energy and low carbon solutions, which is not what we're doing in Canada. We're rebating it to people. Um, so I'd love to see that, actually. I'd love to see this talk about, I mean, in the States, we're talking about a Green New Deal. We're talking about that a little bit here in Canada, but but not not as much. And if, if Canadians support this idea of reinvesting carbon tax monies back into solutions, that's that's kind of the premise of that that kind of you know retooling of the economy that I think would be very impactful and seems to be popular with with people. Um, but anyway, carbon tax not a silver bullet. Certainly should be part of the solution set. Economists all over the world love it, and they look at Canada and say this is a model we should follow. Uh, politically contentious, though, obviously. And then with respect to the bans of plastic, yeah, the, the materials that the the previous government had said they were going to ban, I think it's about 1% of the, of the amount of plastics that we use. So it is a drop in the bucket, but it's an important first step. It sends a message to, to, to individuals, to all of us, to your listeners. It sends a message to plastic producers. It sends a message to retailers, everybody that, you know, this plastic, we actually do need to get off of it. Um, and what the what Canada has done so far is they have added plastics to the list of toxic substances under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which is kind of, of nerdy. But the important part about it is that it gives the federal government regulatory ability to take action on plastics. And, and banning some plastics is only one of those tools. Just like the carbon tax is only one tool to fight climate change, those bans on plastic are just one of the tools. It's, it's a 
the first step actually that, that well the, the listing of toxics is the first step the banning is the second step more steps need to follow and i don't i haven't heard anybody kind of lay out a comprehensive plan and admit that you know we actually yeah we do really need to be using less plastic here in canada and, and it's not all plastic by the way it's not like you know your, your your phone or your your bike tire or whatever your car seat things like that uh, the plastic we're talking about is plastic packaging which is 40 percent of the plastic that we use is this single-use stuff it's it's super super durable plastic's amazing right it's super durable product lasts for a long time unfortunately we use a ton of it to put it, you know, something in a package that we use only for mere seconds and then throw away. That's the piece that needs to be disrupted. And I'm not hearing enough conversation about, about where that goes. It's, uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think, so I mean, just checking through the platforms, uh, two of the parties at least, and I'm presuming the, the Green Party will just take them for uh, as a, you know, automatic. So I, I believe the Liberals are talking about phasing out plastics from requiring 50% to be recyclable by 2030. And the NDP are like this, we're going to ban plastics. Um, do you, was it that kind of, I mean, I guess that really comes down to the difference between the NDP and the, and the Liberals on so many policies that the, the Liberals will tend to be, will phase this in. And I guess it's that thing, you know, politics is the art of the possible and everything. You can't do it if no one will vote for it. And the NDP will be, okay, do it now. Um, do you, do you have, I mean, again, without asking you to sort of point at one party and say, these guys are better. Um, do you feel that the that the more kind of radical approach is 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 needed now uh, that just we're going to ban it full stop deal with it or or, or is that kind of phased approach a, a, a wiser way to go um yeah so i just want to be want your listeners to be clear that you know because i work for a charity we have to be very careful about anything that we would say that's partisan yeah. i can't come out and say that you know one plan's better than another or one party's approach is, is better than another so i i i'm going to be you know a little bit limited in what I can say here, but we've got a serious plastic problem in Canada. We only recycle 9% of the plastic that we use here in Canada. Uh, you know, we all have our blue boxes. And in fact, Ontario pioneered the blue box program um, back in the 80s. Uh, and we were going to go gangbusters on, on, on recycling. Well, here we are 40 years later, recycling only 9% of the plastic that we use. We need to up our game dramatically. You know, the, 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 the World Economic Forum, I think, is the ones who said, you know, by 2050, we're going to have more plastic than fish in the oceans if we don't do something. And I think, you know, Canada, we like to say, oh, we're a small player, but we're not. We're a major plastics producer. We're, um, uh, we're really poor on recycling. And also, we produce uh, the most garbage per capita, I think, of anywhere in the world. Um, so we, we've got to dramatically up our game. And this plastic, I mean, is getting... It, we, we talked about the oceans, but 10,000 tons of plastic end up in the Great Lakes every year as well. And this all gets flushed down St. Lawrence and eventually up to the oceans too. Our plastic is ending up in the Philippines and Malaysia and all kinds of, of developing countries. Like we really have to, to up our game. Now, what are the solutions? I think it's a complex issue. And I, that's why I'm saying there should be more discussion about, about this issue during the election. The election is a, is a key opportunity for Canadians to kind of talk about what kind of policies, you know, would they would they accept? What kind of policies do we need? Uh, what what could what can the federal government do? And that and the federal government's powers are limited, as you said, because there's kind of the limits of a political ability. What do you, what what are voters going to elect you for? But there's also limits under the Constitution uh, of what a federal power can do. And you know, like like the federal government tried to put in a carbon tax, and the Ontario government and the Alberta government uh, decided to try to sue them for that. 
they, they lost. But thankfully, the federal powers to do this carbon pricing was was affirmed, and that's good. But a similar thing is happening on plastics now. Uh, so the federal government has done this thing. They've said plastics are toxic under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, and now a coalition of plastic producers are actually suing the federal government. Imperial Oil, Dow, and Nova Chemicals, the three largest plastic producers in Canada, are taking the government to court on this. And I think that some of the provinces are going to jump in on this too and saying, hey, hey, you don't have federal powers to do that. So, you know, the solutions, it's challenging. It's challenging to figure them out with the public, with the companies, with the provinces and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to say there's a simple solution here. I'm just saying we've got to be talking about these things and finding our way to those solutions. Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right that that these, you know, if you if for the tiny, tiny percentage of people who dive into the actual platforms and go through line by line, stuff is there, but this isn't being mentioned. And, and these are things that actually people would be interested in hearing because there's there's a clear difference between the three uh, parties who are, are, are kind of dominating this election, uh, um, and that's just such a shame, you know. And as it just speaks to the the problems that we have in our democracy at the moment with the way that we debate. Um, how uh, I mean to, to go in a slightly different direction and to put it into an Ontario perspective, how how big a deal was it to our uh, progress when when Ontario's cap and trade was was cancelled? Um, you know. Would would if, if if we still had cap and trade rather than basically having a, a carbon tax imposed on us federal from the federal government, would that have been a better system, or do we actually have a better one now because the federal government stepped in? Um, Again, question. I'm asking you to make a bit of a judgment, but I'll yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's a it's a good question, and uh, it, there's not a simple answer there. Again, I uh, you know, environmental defense, we did support the cap and trade program that the provincial government had put in place. It was not perfect, but it was something that we could work with. Uh, we wanted to see certain elements of that plan strengthened, but we feel the same way about the federal carbon price that's in place right now, there's certain elements that could be strengthened, in particular, the way that it deals with industry, industrial emissions are largely not paying a price uh, in, in Canada, uh, under the federal system right now. And Ontario has an even weaker system that the federal government has said would what could be put in place in lieu of the federal system. So I'd say industrial emitters in Ontario are at this point still pretty much unregulated. None of them have paid a penny in a carbon tax yet. Um, whereas they, they were paying under cap and trade system. In fact, the cap and trade system, uh, you know, they, they held auctions where they sold off the permits that are the, that get traded and those permits, they sold out every year. Uh, and we were in this, the joint, uh, auction with California and with Quebec, California is among the climate leaders in Canada, uh, sorry, in, in, in North America, certainly the climate leader in, in the States. Quebec is among the leaders here in Canada, too. I mean, they benefit from all their hydropower, but they've taken serious actions to reduce emissions. And Ontario used to be running with that pack. We're not anymore. Uh, Cancelling cap and trade was uh, a huge blow to, you know, emissions reductions here in Ontario. The government also reduced the target that Ontario had. So it's what's what's our commitment to reduce emissions now? They, they also put in this other program uh, for industrial emitters, highly problematic. But not only all of that, also... There was billions of dollars in program spending that was created from the proceeds from cap and trade. Uh, there were programs to retrofit your home to make it more energy efficient. There were more generous rebates for electric vehicles. There was money being put out there to, um, in fact, install more electric vehicle charging stations. There were programs to build more bike lanes, to put in more transit, to do all of these climate solutions. $2 billion every year was generated from that program that was all 
all going back into spending, you know, to benefit everybody to help us kind of make this transition. And now we're without those programs. Um, and so there's a hit on that part too. I, yeah, a massive step backwards. Uh, what Ontario, we talk a lot about climate policy with the federal government. We need to have an equal amount of discussion when it comes to the provincial government because there's the, those jurisdictional constitutional issues like with the carbon tax, but also a lot of the policy lies in provincial hands. Like, you know, are we building transit? The building code also, how efficient are our buildings? That is something that is within provincial jurisdiction. The electricity system is provincial jurisdiction. Um, and I'll, even when the federal government has the carbon price in place, they say, well, it's our system, unless you can have a system that's equivalent. And then the kind of the rules around what council's equivalent are pretty weak. And so Ontario gets a pass with a really weak solution, actually. It's, it's hugely problematic. Well, maybe when the provincial election happens, we'll invite you back on. We'll have this discussion, but we'll talk about the the, the provincial uh, jurisdiction. Uh, I'm just looking at our, our clock, and I'm seeing that we're coming up on our, our half-hour mark. So I'm going to politely wrap this up, uh, and I won't keep you any longer, Keith, For but it's a common – it's a kind of the motto of the show. We could be going on about this for hours. So we very much appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us, Keith, and yeah, I'm, I'm – Next year, when we have a provincial election, uh, I think we're going to extend the invitation to you to come back, and we'll talk about this from the provincial viewpoint uh, at the at the standpoint. Well, that that would be great. I'd be delighted to do that. And you know, I just want to say though, I really appreciate this conversation, and I really would encourage all your listeners to go get educated about the various climate plans that are out there. Uh, you can go to any one of you know the environmental organizations in, in Canada's websites, and you can find some materials that you would need to get educated and vote with climate in mind. This was a critical election. Uh, the government that we send to Ottawa is going to be there to the middle of this decade, and this was a critical decade for the fight on climate change. So, anyway, thanks for your interest. Thanks for your listeners. Uh, please think about the climate when you go vote. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. 
The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.